All right, well, good morning, Sedaris. Uh, go ahead and wrap up that conversation that you're having with your friend or your family or your neighbor. Tell them you'll call them back after the service is over. We're going to begin our time of teaching now. Um, thank you for joining us uh, for online church. Welcome to church. It's in your living room. Welcome to church. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're um, stepping out and coming to church even during these trying times. So uh, welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Um, well, if you brought your Bible, if you have your Bible, that's what we usually say. If you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Open it up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be working from today. Um, open up to Acts chapter 1. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. It, uh, it dialogues uh, or it goes through the, the first couple of decades of the Jesus movement after Jesus uh, died and rose again. Um, and so it comes right after the four gospel accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. You have Acts, which continues the story for the next couple of decades of the Jesus movement. And so when you get to Acts, we're going to be right at the very beginning in chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, just go to Google and, and type in Acts chapter one, and whatever Google gives you will be very sufficient uh, for our time together this morning, okay? So Acts chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. And today we're in a three-part series. Well, we're in a four-part series. We're in the third part of the, of the four-part series on the Ascension. Um, and if you haven't heard of the Ascension, the Ascension refers to the event that took place. It's a historical event. Uh, after Jesus was raised from the dead, when God took him from earth back to heaven. That's the ascension. And so we're doing a four-part series on this one single act. And, and you might ask, why it takes so much time on this? Why, why would you unpack such an obscure event for such a long time? Well, there's three events of Jesus' life that we talk about a, a lot. His birth, his death, his resurrection. We even have holidays for them in our, in, in, in our culture uh, where we get to celebrate with gift giving and lots of candy and, and vacation days. We have holidays for them. They get a lot of publicity. But this ascension doesn't really get very much. But we're talking about this so much because just like um, it's pointless to make a huge, beautiful house if no one's going to live in it, just like it's pointless to cook an amazing, delicious meal if no one's going to eat it, um, and just like it's silly to build a, a huge bomb that you're going to use to blow the mountain away so that you can make a road ahead without a detonator to actually do it, um, to actually detonate it, so that the birth, life, and resurrection of Jesus is pointless without the ascension. Because the ascension is the detonator to everything else that Jesus Christ did. The ascension is that which takes Jesus and who he was and all that he did on earth and releases it into the universe and into the cosmos, into everywhere and into your lives. It releases all of the power of the Jesus story into your lives. All of the healing power, all of the courage, all of the boldness, everything gets released into your lives actually through this little small event called the Ascension. And today we're going to be talking about how it unleashes the power, God's power of meaning and purpose and mission into our lives. And that might be a little bit strange to think about considering right now. Because all of us uh, know that, that, you know, right now, everything seems to be pushed uh, pause. Everything's on pause right now. And so it might be strange to talk about how God is trying to accomplish something through you for his kingdom right now. But, but I want to say two things. Uh, one, 
we have to remember that God is always working. He's always working. And, and two, and, and this is really key for right now, for many of us, our jobs have never let us down more than right now when it comes to providing purpose, significance, and meaning. Our jobs have never shown themselves as so weak to actually provide those things for us, whether that be because the coronavirus has threatened our job. Okay, that's very, a very real reality for many. Or because we are working from home and finding out that working from home, we've discovered that work has never been so dull. But the ascension says that God wants to use you right now and empower you in significant, powerful, and incredible ways in this life. You see, if we grasp the ascension, we find that Jesus Christ, his power, it gets exploded into our lives and securely attached to us, his power 2,000 years later. So, so in the ascension, there's actually meaningful and significant work for us to do. And, and I'm going to suggest that it's exactly what we're all looking for, especially in times of hardship, especially in times when we feel sidelined, especially in times when work seems like it's not delivering the meaning and the satisfaction that we thought it would. Okay, so let's read this ascension account together in Acts chapter 1. And, and we're going to start to take some clues from the ascension on how we might find the meaningful purpose of God's mission and significance in our life, okay? So Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is writing. He says, in, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirits to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this is a, a great text. It tells us many, many things, but there are three things that I want to draw out of it for us when it comes to considering um, God's mission that he wants to accomplish through us in the world. Okay, um, three things. Uh, first, the power of the ascension, the power of the ascension. Uh, the second thing is, is how it works. Um, and then finally, the key player of the ascension or, or the promised coming player of the ascension, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are just the three things we're going to talk about today. The power, uh, the method, how it works, and the key player, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so first the power. 
like I said, it's, it's the ascension that releases the power of Jesus' teaching, his death, his resurrection into our lives, which means the ascension is crucial to us at all times, and especially in times of hardship like right now, in times of trial, in times where we realize uh, we really need the power of everything Jesus did just to make it through the day. We really need the power of the gospel to detonate in our lives. So where does this power come from? Where does it come from? Well, look towards the end there at verse 10. After Jesus ascends, after he disappears into heavens, uh, the, the disciples continue to stand there. It's very interesting. They continue to stand there looking into heaven. And then two angels show up and they show up and they say, why do you stand there gazing into heaven? Why do you stand looking? Why do you stand there? Well, why did the angels say that? Well, the, the, the angels meant it as a gentle rebuke. Why? Well, because the apostles saw the, the ascension, and I think quite reasonably so, that they saw it as the loss of Jesus. That they saw it as the loss of his leadership. They saw it as the loss of his intimacy. They saw it as the loss of his protection. And because they thought it was that, a loss, they stood there standing and gazing, inactive, mobile, sad. They felt abandoned. But the angels show up and they're saying something else. Essentially, they're saying this. If you're not filled with wonderful activity and confidence, if you're standing and stuck in, in, in inactivity, unless you're filled with a glorious joy, you don't understand the ascension. The, the penny has not dropped yet. The reason the angels were after the disciples is because the doctrine of the, the ascension hadn't detonated for them yet. Uh, to, to be fair, it had just happened to them, so it's okay. I think that's why the angels are doing this so gently for them. But, but they needed teaching on what the ascension was in order to be unleashed into activity. And, and, and we know that they were. We know that this, this gentle rebuke worked because actually when we look at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he actually describes the ascension in, in a lot shorter, um, in, in a lot fewer verses here. And what he includes in this account is he, he concludes it right like this. While um, Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's the ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising God. You see, the disciples left the ascension, and they were like thunderbolts in the city. They were full of activity. They were full of joy. They, they were full of life. They were full of activity. They were full of mission. They were continually praising God. And if, it, if we aren't going back into the world as thunderbolts, and with this glorious, joyful activity, it might mean that we don't understand, we haven't grasped and accepted the reality of the ascension in our lives. Because the ascension, it detonates everything that Jesus did, which means that the ascension is the opposite of what the disciples thought it was. It's the opposite of what we think it is. The ascension is not the absence of Christ. It's actually the increased presence of Christ. It's the heightened presence of Christ. And unless you have the understanding of the ascended Jesus Christ, unless you have that, you will be standing. You will be staring into heaven. You will be inactive and immobile, motionless. 
If if you're anything like me, uh, maybe that's how some of your mornings start. (laughs) Some of your mornings start and you wake up and the first thoughts in your head are a a mixture of of hopelessness and anxiety. (laughs) How am I going to get through another day of this? And so that leads to the question, well, that power sounds great. Activity, meaning, significance, that sounds great. I'd love that. But how is it delivered to me? How is it delivered to me? What's the method? Is it just an intellectual thing? Well, the, the, the power, the significance, the, the purpose of God's mission is delivered to us, compliments of the ascension, by grasping and accepting what Jesus hopes to accomplish through us. And primarily by grasping and accepting that Jesus hopes to accomplish his prophetic ministry through us, his prophetic ministry through us, through his followers. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do through his ascension. That's why he wants to unleash his, the power of his life, death, and resurrection into our lives is to accomplish a mission. It's meaningful, it's significant, it's purposeful, and he rose so that we might be a part of it. So, so let's move to uh, the method then, okay? So let's grasp this thing that Jesus is trying to do. Let's grasp how he's trying to deliver this mission to us, okay? So look up in, in verse 1. Go back to Acts 1 here. Look up at verse 1. There's a very interesting clue right here in verse 1 that, that you, you can really miss if you are just thinking this is any old introduction. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, uh, to, to give you a little context, this is the second work that Luke is writing that's in the Bible. We have the Gospel of Luke that actually goes through Jesus' uh, genealogy, uh, birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and then a little bit at the end of his ascension. And, this is the, and it's also addressed to Theophilus. And this is the second work that he's doing, and he's also addressing it to Theophilus. And he says, now I'm, I, I, I began to teach you through that other work, what Jesus Christ began to do and teach. Now, this is what's interesting is what he doesn't say. He doesn't go on to say, and now I'm going to tell you what the church did and taught after he left. No. It's clear that this book, Theophilus considers this work as all that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach, even though he's no longer on earth. This is all about what Jesus continues to do. Well, how can he do that? How can he do that? So let's start with what he continues uh, to do, uh, and then we'll go on to how Jesus continues to teach, okay? Um, When you read through the book of Acts, some of the most startling scenes aren't necessarily when these ordinary men of of Galilee that were Jesus' followers and just some fishermen, the most... um, the most startling scenes aren't when they uh, do things that Jesus did. Um, that actually is pretty normal in the books of Acts. In the book of Acts, the most startling things that we see in the book of Acts is when they start to look like Jesus 2.0. Is when they look like Jesus 2.0. You see, in the gospel accounts, we read of a few times when uh, Jesus is walking through a village, and everybody knows that Jesus is coming to the village, so, the, so all the sick people flock to Jesus. And, and, and the ones that touch him are able to gain healing from Jesus. We have one story of a woman who was sick for years, and she did that and instantly healed. 
But in Acts 5, Luke records a scene for us. He records a scene for us where, where Peter's walking through. He's walking through a village, and the same thing is happening. The sick are flocking to Peter. But more amazing things are happening. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in a Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both, of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, he'd walk back and forth to the, the, the Solomon's portico, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Peter's shadow is healing people, and not just some people, all people. That is remarkable. Jesus 2.0, it's remarkable, it's It's crazy. And if you've, um, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, you will hear a cry that goes somewhat like this. If only Jesus were here, we would know what to do. If only he were here, he could fix this. That's an attitude that alludes to not grasping the ascension. Not grasping that it has unleashed Jesus's prophetic ministry into our lives here and now. It conceives of Jesus as the superhero, the superhero that should fly around and rescue all of us from our ailments and all of our sufferings. And so we just need him to come back and start responding to the bat signal already. But the ascension tells us that isn't how God planned it to work right now. The ascension tells us that that's not what God wants to do. Do you want to know why? Because that is really, really limiting. That would be very limiting. Jesus would only be able to be at one place at one time. The problem is there's suffering everywhere all the time. And what the ascension does is it takes the one Jesus who can only be in one place at one time, and then it unleashes him into his followers to work through his followers who are everywhere and in every time. Acts shows us that immediately there were 12 Jesuses walking around. That's crazy. And over the millennia, there have been more and more multiplied put into the world to minister to the suffering of humanity, to bring forth the mission of God into the world. Now, how can that be true? You say, Ryan, that sounds great in theory. This theological conception of the ascension, it sounds great. But let's be honest, that's not part of my reality. People being healed by our shadows isn't part of your reality, Ryan. When was the last time we saw stuff like that? When was the last time we saw 5,000 hungry people fed? Well, that's a fair question. And I'll tell you a story. When the coronavirus hit, and the first time the grocery stores got cleaned out, one of the members at Sedaris saw something that almost everybody missed. He saw that the response to the virus to stock up with food and hold on to that food was going to create 
It was going to put the food banks in a real tight spot. It was going to squeeze the food banks. And, and as a result, the most hungry in our neighborhood were likely going to go without food. And, and, and so uh, D- Dave talked about this. And so what he did was he reached out to us and said, hey, guys, is there anything we can do? And we said, sure, let's just cut off the production costs of what we would usually be paying for rent. And, and let's put that money towards stocking the food bank and, and helping them out. And so up to this date, Dave said, we've donated $1,700. Now, that might not be the miracle of feeding 5,000 people with two loaves of, uh, of bread and, and five fish. But you know what? It's a miracle nonetheless. It's still God's mission working through people to minister to people in this world who are suffering and to get them what they need in order to be whole. You see, this is what Jesus does through his, his disciples now. He will work miracles through them. He will, he will do great things through us in the world. That's what he hopes to do through us. Things like that story, things like the, the countless and countless other stories that the miracles that have taken place, that's what Jesus hopes to do and is doing through his people now. So that's what Jesus continues to do. Now let's move on to what Jesus continues to teach. Okay, you see, Jesus was an incredible teacher. He was an incredible prophet. Jesus said truth that set people free. And now when he ascends, his truth sharing becomes cosmic. It gets unleashed on a huge scale. It becomes available to everyone and it gets applied absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere. And so in a sense, Jesus is still a prophet, but now it's been changed. It's been released, it's been exploded, it's been magnified, it's been multiplied into the world. He's continuing to do it through his followers. So so what does that mean for us? Because nobody ever spoke like Jesus, spoke truth like Jesus. Jesus spoke truth that set people free. Jesus said in in John chapter 8, continue in my truth and it will set you free. Free. And so when you come under the word of Jesus, it sets you free. Much like a, a train in water isn't free to move until you set it on the tracks. And a, a fish isn't free to move if you set it on the tracks, but it is free to move when you set it in the water. People aren't truly free to, to move in activity, in meaningful, redemptive activity, how they're intended to move in the world until they are set on top of the word of Jesus, his truth. And so how does Jesus' teaching ministry continue? That's the question. We, we, we might be conti- really tempted to say, well, it continues through the Bible. People read the Bible and, and they get Jesus' teaching that way. But that's not primarily how it happens. That's not primarily how it happens. It does happen that way, absolutely. But remember... Luke is writing this at a time when there's not actually much written about Jesus. He's writing at a time when not many people can read. He's writing at a time when the Jewish scriptures were actually few and far between. You had to go to synagogues in order to access them. Most of the New Testament had not been written at this point. And so there must be another way. And it's that Jesus's prophetic ministry is to continue through the mouths of believers, the mouths of believers. Now, the strength of this biblical teaching um, that Jesus continued to teach through his followers after he left um, is so strong that in some places, translators, they, they don't even let you see it because they, they, they think that if you read it, it would confuse you. 
Okay, so for example, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, it says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Jesus and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, Paul is reminding the Ephesians about how they got converted there. The Ephesians lived in Asia Minor, and he says, you heard about Jesus, and you were taught in him in accordance with the, two, with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And he's referring to the fact that there is preaching that happened, and they heard it, and they were converted. But here's the thing. In the original Greek, the word about isn't there. It does not say you heard about him. It, it's not there at all. It directly says, you heard him. You heard him. Earlier, two chapters earlier, in Ephesians 2.17, Paul says it directly. He, he says, and Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. <clears throat> now, what's interesting about this Jesus never went to Ephesus. He never went to Asia Minor. He was never there. How could Paul say that Jesus went and preached the word to them? How could he say that? How could he say in Ephesians 4, you heard him? It must mean this. It must be what the New Testament tells us. That if you're a Christian and you tell somebody else about Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish faith, they hear the voice of Christ through you. You're the teachers. We're the teachers. We have that same liberating power of speaking Jesus's truth in the world. This is laid out very clearly in the interchange between the disciples and Jesus, actually, in verse 6. And in verse 6, the apostles ask, uh, Jesus, are you going to establish the kingdom to Israel now? And, and down in verse 8, Jesus replies, no, you are my witnesses. You are my representatives. Representatives. Do, do you see that? In, in, in verse 6, they say, will you? And then Jesus responds, no, 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 no. Will you? <laughs> they say, when are you going to do this, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. When are you going to do this? You're my representative. You're my witnesses in the world. You're the teachers. You're the prophets. Now, when are you going to do this? Now, how in the world can this be, you might say? I'm comfortable with the apostles being the ones to be the prophets. I'm comfortable with, with perhaps uh, pastors being the ones that are responsible for prophetically speaking the truth of Jesus. But, but, but everybody? <clears throat> That's going a little too far. But Jesus gave his disciples a, a heads up that this was coming. Back in Luke chapter 7, Luke really records all the great stuff. Uh, in Luke chapter 7, that doesn't let any of the followers off the hook. Luke chapter 7, verse 6 says this, is Jesus speaking. Among those born of women, there is no greater than John. He's speaking of John the Baptist. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah. That, that's a, an Old Testament um, a prophecy that the spirit of Elijah would return and pave the way for Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist clearly does this. There's interchange between John the Baptist and Jesus in the gospel accounts that confirms this. John the Baptist is 
quite possibly the greatest prophet probably other than Moses to grace the pages of scripture. It's difficult to rank them, isn't it? But, but quite possibly the greatest prophet there is. And Jesus says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, are you a Christian? You might say you're a pretty weak Christian and it doesn't matter. Jesus said that the least in the kingdom of God, somewhere, somewhere there stands to reason that there's got to be the, the, the weakest disciple of Jesus. There's just got to be. If, if you just, it just stands to reason there's got to be. Maybe they're the ones who, the one who most recently has been converted, the, the, the dumbest. I, I don't know how we'd figure this out, but there has got to be the, someone who's the least weakest Christian in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says it doesn't matter. You are a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Well, how can Jesus say this? How can Jesus say this? Well, first, Jesus enlightened his disciples to what the scriptures were actually about. And John didn't have that. Jesus spent 40 days teaching them the Jewish scriptures after his resurrection. That's the Old Testament in your Bible. He spent 40 days teaching it to them. We have two instances recorded in Luke chapter 24. You see, the Hebrews and Jesus' disciples, because they were Hebrews, they thought the Bible was all about them. They thought the Bible was all about their story, and, and the people in the Bible were heroes they were supposed to emulate. So they saw David, they saw King David, and they say, oh, David, and they see David slaying Goliath, and they said, I need to try to be like David. They, they saw Moses leading the Israelites uh, out of slavery, and they said, I need to be like Moses. I need to be like that. Ruth, I need to be like Ruth. Esther, I need to be like Esther. I need to be like that. Look at this prophet. Look at this priest. Look at this king. I, I need to be like that. But Jesus said, no, you don't. In, in fact, you can't. Those scriptures aren't about you. Those scriptures are about me. This is what he taught them. This is how he reoriented their understanding of the truth. You see, there's two ways to read the Bible. You can read every part about the Bible as if it's about you how you need to live, what you must do if God's going to answer your prayers or show you favor in some way. You, you can say, I need to emulate these, uh, these great heroes in, this, in these pages of scripture so that God will think favorably of me. But Jesus said, he showed up and he said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the other way. You don't understand. I am David. I'm the real David. I'm the real king. I'm the real Moses. I'm the real prophet. I'm the real priest. Everything in the Bible is about me. So the other way to read the Bible is, is, is as if it's all about Jesus. You see, the, the gospel is not live in a certain way to gain God's favor. The gospel is all about Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and then he died the death that you should have died and has opened the way to himself so that when you trust in him, you're completely accepted by the Father, no matter what, just like he is. And we know that Jesus is fully accepted and restored to the Father, compliments of the ascension like Dave talked about a few weeks ago. And when you understand that, it means the whole Bible is not about you, it's about him. And John the Baptist didn't even know that. He was beheaded before he got the chance to see it. And so this changes everything for us. When you understand the gospel, not only does the Bible look different, 
but it changes how you view your whole life. And when that happens, you receive the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ and you turn it around and you give it to other people. And that frees people. It frees them. And that's why he says, you are my witnesses. You are my representatives. You are my teachers. You are my prophets. His prophetic ministry keeps going through us. When you speak the truth of Jesus to somebody else, it is Jesus speaking through you. They are not hearing you. They are hearing Christ. It's what Ephesians tells us. It's what the faithful witness of the New Testament tells us, that that Christ speaks through us. That's purpose. That's meaning. That's significance. And for some of us, our sights are a little bit too low. Did you notice how Jesus reset his disciples' ambitions in his response as well? Did you see that? They still think after everything that the life, death, resurrection, their 40 days of masterclass teaching with Jesus, where Jesus shows them what the scriptures are all about, they still think that it's about Israel. They still think that it's about their own kingdom. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, first, um, you're doing it, right? <laughs> that, that, that's the first correction. The, the first correction. Uh, then Jesus says, second, Israel, no, guys, we're going to the ends of the earth with this thing. Just like my scriptures aren't about you, they're about me. My kingdom isn't about Israel. It's not about accomplishing your kingdom. It's about the ends of the earth putting the kingdom over the entire world. And that was always the goal, to be fair. Look back in Genesis chapter 12. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? It likely means that our prayers are too small. Our prayers, even though they're good, they're usually about our own kingdoms and our own areas of influence. They're not ambitious enough. For example, if you offer up a prayer about the gospel affecting your workplace. Jesus says, that's all fine. That's all great. Let's go to your workplace. Let's have the gospel transform your workplace. But, but, but what about your office building? What about the whole building? What about the entire industry in which you work? What about all of big tech? How can we transform that with the gospel? You see that? You see, we... We pray prayers for our neighbors, and Jesus says, yeah, that's awesome. Look, we're going to go there. We are going to unleash the gospel into the lives of your neighbors, which you can do because I ascended and you're empowered to do that. But what about the rest of your street? What about your neighborhood? We're going there. We're going to go there. There is <clears throat> a young man named William Booth in the mid-1800s, William Booth, when he was 16, he decided that he wanted to be a pastor and a preacher. And so he apprenticed. Uh, he went through a two-year apprenticeship program. And, and upon graduating the program, he was 18, and, and he started preaching. And he was a really charismatic and a really, really good preacher. And he, for about four or five years, he actually made the rounds in London. He, he's uh, in London. And he made the rounds in London. The churches would hire him to preach um, and he'd make his living that way as a kind of a, a, a hired preacher. He's really good at it. And, and he got better and better over those five years, so much so that the Methodist denomination hired him on and gave him a congregation to pastor. And, and so he was a great preacher. And he also turned out to be a great pastor. And the church was growing and it was getting bigger and bigger. But what happened is he must have got 
a vision, a glimpse. He must have grasped and, and accepted the ascension. Because all of a sudden he had a vision that was far bigger than just a church. He had a vision for the people who had never set foot in a church. He had a vision for the people who needed to hear the word of God, who needed the truth of Jesus spoken to them, but but were unable to get it because they would never go to the places that it was spoken. He wanted to go to the streets and bring the word of God to the streets in the mid-1800s in London. So he applied to the, deni- the, the, the denomination. He, it was, he was part of the Methodist Reformed denomination. He said, let me go so I can preach to these poor people in the streets because actually at that time, it was actually the poorer classes who were no longer going to church in London. He said, I want to preach to these people on the, on the streets. And um, they said, no, are you kidding me? You're like growing this huge church for us. This is really good for the denomination right now. And, and so he wrestled with them over it for a couple of years. And, and by the time he was 31 years old, he quit. He had a wife and kids, and he quit. And he said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to do this, because Jesus' kingdom is bigger than just who's coming into the four walls of these churches. It's, it's to all the people who are outside the walls of the church. And so he started preaching to them, and he quickly learned that he's also going to have to minister to their physical needs of, of food, shelter, and clothing. And so he, he built this organization in 10 years, he had 1,000 volunteers that were, that were working with him. And these weren't just like someone who was volunteering uh, once a month. These are people who were, who were gainfully, uh, that were gainfully imp- employed is the wrong word, but they were, they were more than part-time workers. They were more than half-time workers for him. 1,000 people in 10 years ministering to the, the physical and spiritual needs of the poor in the city. It was called the Christian Mission, the first of its kind. Today, it's known as the Salvation Army. It's in 100 countries. It's, it's in every corner of the world. It's still at the top level of organizations who provide humanitarian and spiritual aid to those who need it most. The ascension tells us that the scope of Jesus' mission is far greater than we think it is, always. So that's the power and the method, okay? Jesus does he performs activity and teaching through his people. Now the key player, the Holy Spirit, okay? I was tempted to start my talk here, actually, because Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit twice after all in this passage. But I wanted you to grasp and accept the power of the ascension before we get to the key figure released by the ascension. So as to highlight our parts in participating with the prophetic ministry of Jesus, okay? It's, it's just too tempting, I think, for us to say that the prophetic ministry of Christ acting through us is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to work through us. I think it's just too easy to shift the responsibility solely on to him instead of owning our part in it as well, okay? So let's talk about how we can participate with the Spirit to really accomplish Jesus' meaningful, significant, purposeful, powerful mission in the world, okay? Jesus says in verse 8, he says that the Holy Spirit is the person who actually mediates the power of the ascension to his followers. Um, you, you could think of it like this. Um, the power of the ascension, it, it releases to you logically, okay, when Jesus raises and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Logically, it has been released. Um, what's released there logically there is only practically released when the Holy Spirit comes. 
And then up in verse five, Jesus says, this is going to happen in a few days. Okay. So that makes sense because we know that Passover, uh, I'll say Passover and Pentecost are seven weeks apart. That's 49 days. Jesus was in the grave for three days. Then he was with them for about 40 days. And so these two events are actually only a handful of days apart, you know, because we don't have a lot of info on what those 40 days looked like recorded for us in the scriptures. We tend to lump uh, the ascension with the resurrection. But in reality, we really need to be lumping these two events uh, together a little bit more. They're actually closer together and they're tied together logically and practically. Now, Jesus gave his disciples a heads up regarding the things the Holy Spirit was going to be responsible for doing when he showed up. He said, these are the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do. uh, And these things are remarkably prophetic. They really go in the line of the prophetic ministry of Christ. So this, these are the three things that come from John 16. Go ahead and open that up later and read it. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit would only say what he heard Jesus say. He would only say what he heard Jesus say. That's the first thing Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. The second thing is he said the Holy Spirit would guide his followers into all truth. Guide his followers into all truth that he heard Jesus say. And the third thing is he said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I think we're tempted to reduce the prophetic nature of the Holy Spirit. I think we like how the Spirit is to be a comforter for us. After all, that's the name that Jesus gives him. I think we're comfortable with the notion that the Holy Spirit might um, encourage or tell us when and how to encourage other believers or, or when and how to pray with other believers. But I think it gives us the nervous sweats to consider that he wants to do through us what John says he does, convict the world. And in John, that term world means those who are not Christians. It means those who are rebelling against God. How will the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin? How will the Holy Spirit show the world what Jesus' righteous life um, looked like? How in the world will, will the Holy Spirit tell the world that the judgment is coming if we don't open our mouths and let him speak through us? The best way to start thinking through this is to start reminding ourselves that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That's why he desires to operate in this way through us. That's why he is going to empower the prophetic ministry of Christ into the world. In fact, this moniker um, of Spirit of Christ is actually used several times in reference to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You can see that in Romans 8, 1 Peter 1. uh, There's another one in Galatians 4. But how does this help us? How does this help us now, okay? Well, it means we can look at the Jesus of the Gospels and get a pretty good model for what it looks like to let the Holy Spirit speak prophetically through us. And and, and I think the model is a four-part process. Okay. And and I'm going to go through it quickly for you. It goes like this. Part one is the content is to, to get the content. That means to learn the prophetic teaching of Christ, read his teaching, get to know it, read through the gospel accounts, understand how the rest of the Bible is really all about him. Well, how do you do that? By going to church, by reading your Bible, by talking about it with other people, 
by coming to things that you don't understand and asking the Holy Spirit to help you understand what it's actually saying about Jesus. Okay, that's, that's part one, the content. Part two is the character. Part two is character. Let the prophetic teaching, let the words of Jesus have their way with you. Let them mold you, let them change you, let them shape you. Through confession of your sin and repentance, learn to adapt your life to Jesus's prophetic teaching. Don't change, mold, or shape Jesus's prophetic teaching to adapt to the sin in your life. That makes you, as Holden Caulfield would say, a phony. And people don't listen to phonies. Um, a shout out to my literary friends who got that catcher in the rye reference. No, our character actually has to mirror the word of God if we're actually going to have people listen to us when we say they need to listen to it themselves and we share it with them. Okay? Part three, emotions. Emotions. We live in a city where the vast majority do not want to set themselves on Jesus's liberating teaching. It's, it's a sad reality. Uh, but it, do, it means that if you don't see at least one thing every day that breaks your heart, you're not opening your eyes or your soul to reality. If you don't see one thing every day that breaks your heart, you're not looking at reality. You're not opening up your heart and your soul to reality. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows, and we see him lamenting over and over again in the Gospels because his eyes and soul was open to the reality of brokenness in the worlds, in the world. Open yourself up to the world. What's one way that you can start doing this? Uh, start journaling or include the things that break your heart over the course of the day in your journaling. That's, that's so crucial to letting the Holy Spirit speak through us in the world. And then comes part four. And remember, this is a process. And so after you've spent kind of time working through these first three categories, you're ready for part four. This is twofold. Part A, be connected. Okay? Uh, well, I've called part four the action, which, which uh, you need two parts for. You need to First, be connected. You have to be in the world and relationally connected to people who don't know Jesus in order for the Holy Spirit to prophetically uh, reveal the truth to them. Okay, so uh, that means that posting on social media isn't, isn't really action. Um, and then part two is be bold. Be bold. Now, don't be a jerk. Don't be brash. Don't be harsh, but be winsomely bold in the relationships you have, you have to share Jesus's prophetic teaching on life. When you are, when you have, when you are aware of the word of God, when you are um, modeling your own character after it, and you're going to fall short, and so you're going to have to ask for repentance, and you're going to fall short a lot, and you have to confess. I mean, that, that's okay. That's still modeling your life after the word. Uh, a life of repentance is still a life modeled after the word, okay? Um, when you actually open your heart up to the brokenness that is around you, that you see out of your eyes, and that you feel in your soul, then you are finally ready that in those relationships to say a winsome, bold word from the Holy Spirit to Jesus's teaching that Jesus will be prophetically speaking through you to the world. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, done through us. It, it, this is exactly how the Jesus movement spread from a couple of handfuls of fishermen on a lake in countryside uh, Podunk, Israel, 2,000 years ago to everywhere. 
over 2,000 years. Will you let God use you as his prophet to those he loves and longs to bring to him? It will be your most satisfying, meaningful, significant, enduring task that you undertake in this life. I guarantee it. You will experience setbacks, absolutely. Um, There will be times when you offer a bold word and and you get rejected, even when you do it winsomely. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. You will get rejected, but you will not regret it in the long run. There will be times if you work through this process in your life continually when the bold word of the Spirit will be Jesus speaking through you and people will hear not you speaking, but Jesus himself. And that is the mission that the ascension explodes into our lives and into the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you as as your children, as your sons and as your daughters, knowing that you have meaningful work for us to do here and now. And so we pray uh, right now that you would empower us, that, that you would empower us to grasp and, and accept the ascension right now, Lord, that, that we would be able to lean into the power of the ascension, that we might be tasked with your meaningful mission and ministry in the world. God, I pray for my friends right now who are watching this video who don't know you. God, I pray that, that they would just offer up a, a, a prayer to you right now for whatever they need. And, and for with however little faith that they have, God, would they just offer that to you right now and ask you for it? I just pray that you would reveal yourself to them through your son and his word. I ask that you would bring Christians into their lives so that they can hear your son speak directly to them audibly. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you. Amen.